welcome to my mommy's podcast. This episode is brought to you by Alatura Naturals Skincare. You guys loved the founder, Andy, when he came on this podcast to talk about his own healing journey after a tragic accident caused massive scarring on his face. From this experience, he developed some of the most potent and effective natural skincare options from serums and masks and a lot of products in between. The results are super visible on his perfectly clear skin that is free of scars. I personally love the mask and I use it a couple times a week and I often use their gold serum at night to nourish my skin while I sleep. All of their products have super clean ingredients and they really work. Andy is absolutely dedicated to creating the highest quality products possible and it shows. You can check them out at alaturanaturals.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the discount code wellness to get 20% off. So again, that's alaturanaturals, so A-L-I-T-U-R-A-N-A-T-U-R-A-L-S.com forward slash wellness mama and the discount code wellness to save 20%. This episode is sponsored by Four Sigmatic, maker of some of my favorite coffees, teas, and drink mixes. They're infused with superfood mushrooms like reishi, cordyceps, chaga, turkey tail, and lion's mane. Many of their formulations also include adaptogens, which are herbs that help our bodies adapt to stress and other beneficial ingredients, all tucked into convenient packets that you can add to hot or cold water for a quick drink. My personal favorite is their mushroom coffee because I already drink coffee and adding superfood mushrooms is an easy way to upgrade my morning cup. I also keep packets in my purse for when I'm out and about, especially when I'm traveling. If you aren't familiar with the many benefits of these mushrooms, they contain things like polyphenols, polysaccharides, beta-glucans, and antioxidants that support the immune system. And they aren't just great for us, they actually improve the environment in several ways too. They help with soil health through a process called bioremediation, which is the breakdown of toxic compounds that have infiltrated water and soil. They're truly something you can feel great about consuming, both for your own health and for the environment. Wellness Mama listeners get a special discount. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellnessmama and use the code wellnessmama to save 15%. Again, that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash wellnessmama and the code wellnessmama to save 15%. Hello and welcome to the Wellness Mama podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and I'm here with someone who I highly respect and can't wait to share with you. Dr. Alan Christensen is a naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid function, adrenal health, and metabolism. He's been actively practicing in Scottsdale, Arizona since 1996 and is the founding physician behind Integrative Health which is a clinic there. He's also a New York Times bestselling author whose books include the recent Metabolism Reset Diet, the Adrenal Reset Diet, and the Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease. I am personally a patient of Dr. C, and I consider him one of the smartest people I know. He's also one of the most interesting people I know, and he's a competitive mountain unicyclist. How many people do you know who can say that? So without (laughs) further ado, welcome Dr. C, and thanks for being here. Hey, Katie. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm glad, glad to be able to spend some time with you here. Oh, it's always a pleasure. And I'm especially excited to chat about your most recent work because I think like everything that you've written, it's really going to help a lot of people. And I'd love to start there. What inspired you to write this most recent book, The Metabolism Reset Diet? You know, yeah, it was just a, I guess, a natural extension of my own my own health journey from how 
weight affected me early in life and then a few stages later in life as well. And then also just the, the big struggles of my, my patients and readers. It's always been about managing weight and managing energy. And I wanted just to come to some deeper understandings about how those things tied together. Gotcha. And so on that note, who would you say this diet is, or actually before we get to that, I'd love to hear, you mentioned your own st- struggles with weight as a child. And I yeah. know this is an amazing story. If you don't mind, can you touch on your own story a little bit? Yeah, for sure. Um, I had a, had a young, young mother who I, I was adopted. She did not choose to raise me, but she had some health challenges and I was born with cerebral palsy and I had some uh, movement complications from that. And bone issues, but also I had seizures from it. And somehow the mixture, I think I I just really couldn't do physical things. I just didn't have that as an outlet. I was always driven towards it, but I would get injured and whatnot when I try to do things. And somewhere along the way around adolescence, just before that, food became an outlet. You know, I, I haven't talked about this part a lot, but I have one vivid memory of being at a resort my parents were part owners of. And I had this great big place to, to play around in. They were always working hard, but I was largely unsupervised. And we had a, we had a kitchen with people that cooked for their guests. And I remember walking around figuring out that I could make myself high by eating enough chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> this total epiphany, like I had like four or five of them, like, wow, this is pretty unusual. And, and, you know, in retrospect, there was obviously some, something that was off. There was some psychological stress, some metabolic abnormality that I was feeding in some way. And I became really heavy from that. And I, I came to realize how the, the extra pounds really just hurt my health directly in terms of worsening chronic pain and movement patterns and worsening other chronic inflammatory sim- sim- symptoms. And then also seeing how it affected me socially and how, how peers reacted towards me. And it was a big thing. Uh, I really just kudos to yourself and all the other people who've written great health books and how much those can benefit people. And that was what just changed my life was stumbling across some health books, you know, back in the seventies, there was fewer titles and fewer availability of them, but what I found made a radical difference. And it just put me on an arc to want to keep understanding these things better and, you know, help, help others in that journey along the way. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. And you have, I feel like a unique perspective with now over 20 years of clinical experience with people with across the board, everything from thyroid problems to just endocrine system problems in general, adrenal problems. So I would love to hear your take on why you felt there was such a need for this particular book right now and who can, who could benefit from it? Yeah. So I I think that we've, we've gone through a lot of cycles of popular diets, you know, low fat in the eighties and all sorts of things since then. But most people, I think, understand that if they restrict their diet enough, if they cut out a lot of food categories, or if they just radically drop their total food intake, that, that sure, they can, they can elicit some change on the scale, but it, it doesn't last. And even then, they don't feel well. You know, it's, I think about like having three dials. You've got like your weight, your appetite, and your energy. And it's almost, it's almost a paradox because when you get a couple of them lined up, one of the others gets thrown off. So, so yeah, if you starve yourself or restrict categories a lot, you may affect some change in weight, but you'll tank your energy and really cause appetite to rebound. And then on the other hand, people have often seen that 
if they try to, you know, eat good foods, eat clean, eat organic and eat intuitively, they might do a really good job with their health and their energy and, and, and be able to be very satisfied with their appetite, but they'll often not see their weight improve. And they may even see that move in the wrong way. So my thought was not, not just what is a, what is a longer list of, of foods to avoid, but you know, why does this happen? And I've come to understand that, you know, getting how the body regulates itself, when it works well, those three dials of appetite, energy, and weight, they should sync up effortlessly. You know, you should have it to where you eat to your hunger levels, your energy is steady, and you've got a healthy weight from that. So the question is, why, why does that go wrong? And what is it we can do to really get that back again? Yeah, absolutely. I think so many people, that is what they struggle with, truly. Um, and I think you're right. I think we've, in society, we see this cycle of potentially dangerous diets that people do for a short amount of time, but it probably long-term actually creates more dysfunction than solving that problem. I know that I've read, and you could probably speak to this better than I could, but I've read about how things like that cycle of binge dieting or all these different words that they call it can actually harm the metabolism so much over time because you're taking in too many calories and too few and your body doesn't know how to respond to that. So I think you're so right on that. I think um, we've seen this kind of dangerous cycle in society, especially in the last decade or so of these kind of trendy diets that people tend to stick to for a little while and then rebound. And at least from what I've read, that cycle of dieting, especially extreme dieting, can actually have really dangerous side effects for the body in the long term. And especially if you're someone like, for instance, like me with thyroid issues, that's something you really don't want to necessarily do, at least from what I've read. But I would love to get your insight on that because I know, like I said, I know there's been a lot of different trendy diets over the last few years and people tend to jump on the latest bandwagon. You know, awesome point, and I could not agree more, and, and especially about thyroid function. So we think about metabolism, and I, I, I think about a couple of different ways of considering that, one of which is just is it fast or slow, and the other is how flexible it is, and I'll, I'll come back to that. But in terms of just how much our body burns fuel at rest, you know, how well we do that, one of the biggest variables is thyroid function. And when we plummet our food intake, our body has adaptive mechanisms that kick in that keep us from just eating up too much of our own body mass. And one of the biggest ones involves changing how thyroid hormones get used. So it's, it's completely expected that when someone does lower their food intake by more than about 25% for more than about six weeks, that they move into a responsive hypothyroid state. And that's just to shut down the metabolism. Now, if you were to imagine the, the body as, as thinking or having just like a deliberate wisdom rather than like an unintentional wisdom, that would make sense in the context of famine. You want your body to slow down and spare and hold on to what you could. So that, that's one consideration of that. And, and yeah, extreme dieting can be a big trigger. With, with flexible metabolism, it's a little bit different. And that's where I was alluding to about the idea of the energy and the appetite and the weight. So when you've got a flexible metabolism, even if your food intake goes up and down within some parameters, you still, if your food intake goes down a bit, you still can maintain good energy. And if it goes up by small amounts, weight doesn't have to change. And everyone does that to some degree. You know, we, we never have precisely the amount of food we need on a given day. So when our body works well, we take whatever extra there is and we store that harmlessly in a form of fuel that we can access quickly in the liver. 
And if there's a little less than we need, we, it's the opposite. You know, we, we still feel well and don't have to go into cravings. We can still be energized, but we draw from that store, stored energy from the liver and then keep things going really well. Now, there's an emerging concept that's been called leaky liver. That's a huge part of just why people can gain or lose metabolic flexibility. That's, yeah, that's super interesting concept. And I guess the, the obvious question that I'm wondering is, is this damage permanent? And if not, what can someone do? How do we start rehabilitating the body from being in that type of a state? Well, that's, that's the exciting part is that some parts of the body are more resilient than others, more reparative than others. And you could probably just quantify that in terms of rate of cell turnover and normal cell turnover in the population. So you think about like brain cells, for example, to where we now know that as adults, we do still have brain cell turnover. It is quite slow. And so if there's a lot of damage or loss, we may not have turnover that's fast enough to make up for significant loss. And on the other hand, we think about things like the gut lining where turnover can be in a matter of minutes. And the liver is quite a ways over on that side of fast cell turnover. Uh, people can donate a big chunk of their liver to a compatible loved one, for example, and theirs can readily grow back again. They say we can lose more than 80% of it, and it can function to normal capacity in a matter of just a few months. So when we're talking about changes in the liver, then a lot of change is possible. And even if there has been a lot of alteration in metabolism, that can come back again. And that, that's a really exciting part to see. That is exciting. And I'm curious also, what are some of the risk factors that someone might have that could put them more at risk for um, a liver-based issue like this? I, I'm curious, especially from a personal perspective, if there's a link with thyroid issues, for instance, and having more of a tendency towards these liver issues. Well, there, there is an overlap. And with, with liver issues, we can think about this along a continuum. And what I'm describing as leaky liver is one of the earlier stages of that continuum. If it advances, then we think about fatty liver syndrome or overt cirrhosis, where there's just significant damage to the liver. And there's a lot of data around fatty liver, especially. And it's been shown that both ways that people that have thyroid disease are more at risk for fatty liver and vice versa. If we pull populations that have fatty liver, they have higher rates of thyroid disease. Other overlaps we see would include just blood sugar abnormalities, simple tendencies towards hypoglycemia even, but then certainly anywhere in the tendency of the spectrum of diabetes. Um, latest stats on that are that the majority of adults are either diabetic or at risk for diabetes. It's actually 51% or over now. And fatty liver itself, I've seen data arguing that's more than 40% of adults that have very clearly diagnosable versions of it. Other things that create higher risk for liver issues, uh, sadly, this is one more case in where female gender is a risk. And we think a lot of that comes down to the, the complex work that it takes to metabolize and process the fluctuating levels of estrogen and progesterone. So yeah, that's a big factor. And then age is just relevant. You know, each decade, there's higher rates of manifestations of liver disease as well. You know, medication usage, exposure to environmental toxicants, those are all factors as well. Got it. On the note of uh, thyroid, before we move on, I know a question that you and I have spoken about, and I want to make sure I get you on the record to answer because I get it so often, <laughs> is about with thyroid issues and iodine. Because even when I first started researching thyroid issues, and I was pretty sure something was going on with mine, that was very common advice online and even from experts was to take iodine. Yeah. And I know that you've done extensive research on this and have clinical experience. So can you just explain that for the record so that I can refer people back? 
For sure. You know, this is such an important topic. So thyroid disease is rampant and we think about just the drivers of that. And it would seem like just the perfect scenario if this common disease that has big effects for a lot of people could be driven by just the lack of a simple nutrient. And even more than that, it, it can be in other parts of the world. In, in America, thyroid disease is primarily driven by Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is autoimmune. We also think about Graves as being one of the more common causes of, of causing thyroid disease, which is also autoimmune in nature. Iodine deficiency is a culprit, but not so much in parts of the world that have iodine fortification. So we see that in the US, in Europe, in Japan, where there's iodine sufficiency, that it's just really not, not a trigger. And it's such a paradox because the thyroid needs iodine. And if you have too little, that can slow it down. I, I, finally, I finally think I got a, a good intuitive analogy for how iodine works for thyroid hormone. You know, it seems like if the thyroid needs iodine and the thyroid is sluggish, then it must just be a lack of iodine. But Iodine, I think of it more like a key to a car than a gas pedal to a car. So it's not that the more you push it, the faster it goes. No, if the key is gone, the car can't go anywhere. But more keys don't mean a faster car. You know, I've, I've, I've got a Jeep I use for getting in the back country, and it's, it's great for that, but it's not a racing vehicle, you know. <laughs> and if my keys are missing, the Jeep doesn't move at all. But if I've got 100 sets of keys, my Jeep is not a Ferrari. You know, it doesn't make it faster. In fact, you could even imagine to where 100 sets of keys or maybe 10,000 sets of keys could mean that you couldn't even see where you're going. So it's the same way with iodine. And we see that too little slows the thyroid, but your thyroid pumps in iodine so aggressively that whenever you get a surge of iodine, your thyroid has a lot of protective mechanisms that keep it from just making way too much hormone. You know, I think about that like the circuit to your house. You know, we have uh, say that our, our, our lights have to run on 10 amps of power. And if for some reason we had a short circuit and we had 100 amps going through, you know, we would blow a fuse so the house wouldn't burn down. And that's the way the thyroid works. So paradoxically, high-dose iodine slows the thyroid. So a complete lack of iodine does slow the thyroid as well, but so does a little bit too much. And in terms of typical American intake, the exception would be those who are raw food vegan and not consuming iodized salt. That category can get low, but barring that category, most people do average between 160 to 190 micrograms of iodine. And it's surprising that a large range of diets, uh, you know, cooked food, raw, uh, not, not exclusively raw food, but some raw food, more vegan, more paleo, more mixed, even standard American. It's surprising how many different diets still fall about in that range. So people rarely get much less than that. And in terms of the sweet spot for thyroid disease, it seems like it's about 100 to 300 micrograms. So the more you are below that, it can be a problem for triggering thyroid disease. But the more you are above that, the more that can be a trigger for causing it in those who are susceptible to it. And because of that, because of that pump, extra amounts end up just inhibiting it. Now, another big wrinkle is that those who are on thyroid medications, they're getting a pretty fair dose of iodine in their thyroid medicine. So thinking about that one to 300 microgram range, many of them are, are up against the high side of that already. And their, their best strategy is just to minimize and avoid any extra amounts. But so commonly, people will have very real thyroid disease or they've got suspicions that make them think they've got thyroid disease and they will then take iodine to 
you know, hopefully improve that. And sadly, it almost always does the exact opposite. That is such a clear and concise explanation. I love the key analogy. I think that's really helpful for understanding it. And I think it's also very illustrative of how, especially in the U.S., we have this tendency of if some is good, more is better. (laughs) Uh, And that comes into play with the diets. It comes into play with food. I think that's just a very common theme. You know, a few more few more points on that, just to help your listeners. Uh, there's there's no really accurate iodine tests. That often comes up as a follow up question: How can I test myself for iodine? And I'm not I'm not saying tests don't exist; they do. But the only tests that exist are ones that are accurate for gauging the iodine in a population, but they're not consistent enough for gauging the iodine in an individual. So what I mean by that, like say for a 24 hour urine iodine or a spot urine iodine. If you measure 10,000 people, you can get a sense of if this population has enough, too little, or too much. But if you measure one person and you measure them a couple of times, you will not get the same reading. You'd have to measure an individual person upwards of 200 times with a 24-hour sample to be within 90% predictive value of what their levels would be. So there's just not accurate tests. But fortunately, none of us are unable to assimilate iodine from from our diet. So as long as we've got a diet with some variety of good organic vegetables, you know, various lean protein sources, several food categories, we're going to be okay on that. And if we are on thyroid medications, then the main strategy is to not add in any extra iodine. That's such an interesting point and really good to know because I think people do understand a lot more now things like folate and you know the B vitamins and how certain people may actually not be able to convert those effectively from diet as well. But no. that's great to know that on iodine that doesn't exist. So this would be pretty much an across the board recommendation, especially if you already know that you have thyroid problems, definitely something you'd want to be aware of. So I really appreciate you going deep on that. But back to the idea of the metabolism. And so I'm guessing that there are probably a lot of people listening who are resonating with a lot of the things that we've talked about and especially that whole cycle of dieting and it working for a while and then not working anymore. So I'm curious, and of course, I'll definitely make a a link in the show notes for the book, which I think everybody should read, but can you walk us through what are some of the basic ways we can start to help the body recover and to break that cycle of the dieting and hurting the body and not having enough energy? For sure. You know, so one, one big thing is to think about the idea of changing one's weight to, to prioritize changes in the waist over changes to the weight. So people can often do the right things and improve their health, but they may not see the scale weight change that they wanted, but they may have seen the inches that, that they wanted. And that's a better sign because the inches around the, the waist are largely from changes in the liver itself and just less mass in the liver itself. So that's one big thing is focus more on inches and on waist than on weight. The other thought is I would highly encourage people to think about any weight loss efforts as really distinct and finite projects. So yeah, there's been an idea that if you're eating healthy food, that your weight should like magically go back to normal. And a quick pushback to that is, you know, imagine a diet that was wild caught, uh, fresh salmon, you know, wild picked blueberries, greens, like the healthiest foods imaginable. Well, that's what bears eat to gain weight and hibernate. So, so yeah, so, so food quality alone will not necessarily improve body weight, but it certainly can improve health in a million ways. So you want to eat quality food in general, but you shouldn't think that your day-to-day life and habits should lead to weight loss. Weight loss is something that in the best of circumstances, is unnatural for the body and is a bit of a strain. So 
in the book, I talk about like a, a four week process, but really for six weeks is an upper limit. You wouldn't want to be in a mode of weight loss for longer than that. I really keep it more to four because longer than that, you really are causing changes to the thyroid, like you mentioned, and also changes to the cortisol rhythms. So that's one big thing. Another one is that I like to think about the category of fuel in the diet rather than, than calories. And I make that distinction because calories include things like protein and fiber. They work differently. Fuel, I lump together conceptually the uh, carbohydrates, fats, and even, even like ketone supplements because chemically they're all the same thing at the point of being used for energy. So when they're broken down by the, by the mitochondria, they become something called oxaloacetate. And all of them, that's exactly what they're comprised of. So they're, they're really not different at that level. We've often thought that if we could take carbs, fats, ketones, and rearrange that category in some way, that that alone would fix things. But I want people to understand that they're really all fuel. And the idea of changing, changing the body's fuel dynamics and helping the liver get unclogged from too much fuel, it does take being on a low amount of fuel for a shorter period of time. But the pitfall is then losing a lot of lean body mass. And when that happens, then you're you're just getting set up for yo-yo dieting and more impairments of metabolism. So part about that is being sure that even though you're lowering your fuel intake, you're still maintaining an adequate, you know, not, not excessive, but an adequate amount of protein to cut the risk of muscle loss and to keep the metabolism healthy. Um, another thing that I do that's quite different in this program is, believe it or not, I discourage exercise during that active stage of weight loss. Um, there's a lot of great data about the benefits of exercise for weight maintenance, and I just could not more heartily endorse it for those purposes. But during that acute stage, it creates either more appetite or higher demand on the body to process fuel. So I encourage very brief, I call these micro workouts in the book, and I talked about how to do those, but very brief things of up to just a few minutes towards the goal of keeping your muscles stimulated, but not creating high fuel demands. So those are some of the big ideas about yeah, having dieting being a short-term project, maintaining protein intake, taking this whole bucket of fuel and lowering, lowering that, and then just minimal but adequate stimulation on the muscles to keep them engaged. Got it. And that probably seems psychologically so much easier for people as well. The idea of a, like a four-week project is much more doable than I know people when they get on a diet think like, oh, I can only eat like this for the rest of my life, <laughs> which is unsustainable. And then they rebound. So I'm curious then, so someone goes through this four-week process, hopefully then they're improving their liver by the end of that. Is this something that would be cycled until a person reaches whatever their healthy weight is um, based on some kind of a schedule? That's, that's exactly the idea. And what I encourage that way is if someone does have a lot of change they want to make is to plan on up to, up to four times per year, you know, up to quarterly and then taking at least two week breaks between the efforts. So best cycle is if someone is having just a small amount of change to make, you know, once a year is a good thing for maintenance, but if there's more changes you'd want than just once, once per quarter is ideal. And in terms of general health benefits, I'm just, I'm just staggered by how many things can relate to a small amount of healthy fat loss. You know, we've heard a lot about visceral fat, but the dreaded belly fat, and for sure it's a nemesis, but there's a version that's even worse that we've not heard a lot about, and that's called the organ fat. So we've got a different kind of fat that gets embedded in the liver and the pancreas. And that stuff, I mean, even like two grams, like the mass of a paperclip, 
that can be the difference between being diabetic and non-diabetic. So it's just huge. And I think in a lot of cases, people have cut out, they've been very restrictive on food categories and they've seen health benefit, but they may have misattributed the benefit from the restriction where it could have come from just dropping some of that organ fat. So I've seen data about migraines, autoimmune disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, diabetes, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel diseases, uh, fibromyalgia, you know, fatigue patterns, all these things that people have, have improved and they've improved thinking that they happen because they just cut down a lot on food categories. But those things also can improve from a drop in this organ fat. There's compounds called adipokines or these inflammatory chemicals that come from organ fat and they trigger many negative effects upon the body. So it's a huge, huge blessing for the system to shed some of that and it functions so much better without it. That's fascinating. And I know I've seen some research and different articles explaining how basically that idea of the belly fat or just like waist to hip ratio for women, and I believe maybe waist to shoulder ratio for men, that that's actually a more statistically accurate indicator of a lot of different risk factors for death over the long term than just body weight. Is that kind of the concept you're explaining here as well? Spot on. And in the book, I talk a lot about uh, waist to height ratio. I've seen a lot of, lot of data on that. And both genders, and it's actually a really simple thing too. Um, most of us as adults know our height. It doesn't change too quickly. And then just measure waist around the belly button. And the protocol is get out of bed in the morning, ideally not after the day of having like a, high, a higher than normal salt intake, but wake up in the morning, empty your bowels and your bladder and take a, just a deep breath in and out and relax your belly muscles all the way and measure inches around the belly button and right around the waist circumference at the point level of the belly button and compare that to height. Now, the danger zone is half. So quite simply, you want your waist circumference to be less than half of your height. And, and yeah, like you're saying, I've seen a lot of data saying that your total mortality risk, that can be a better predictor than blood cholesterol or blood pressure or lots of other things. And it's, it's a lot more meaningful than body mass index, which can have many pitfalls for those who are taller or shorter or have more muscle mass than typical. So yeah, waist to height ratio is a hugely, hugely important variable and easy to measure. That's yeah, super easy metric to remember for sure. And knowing you and knowing the way that you research, I'm guessing that you've also looked at the metrics that can improve when you improve your liver, uh, especially like your liver health and belly fat and organ fat, like you've talked about. So from what you've seen in the clinical side, what are some of the markers that are actually changing or improving in the body as people start to really focus on liver health? You know, awesome question. And a lot of, a lot of things that relate to blood sugar, blood lipids, inflammation. So I talked about how there's this thing called leaky liver. And what's happening is your liver is like a, a, spare, a spare department for holding on to fuel, you know, the, the carbs, the fats, the, the ketones. So whenever there's extra of that, we would hold that in the liver. But there's some point where it gets too full. Now, there becomes damage to the liver when there's so much there that the liver can't grow new cells quickly enough. And there's a common thing in a blood test called the ALT or the Allen and amino transferase. And this is pretty bizarre, but well within the normal range, all the liver specialists agree that if you're even on the upper half of normal, that there's some kind of a problem with your liver. To be precise, the number is 18. Some studies suggest 19. But for women, if you're above 19, there's something wrong with your liver. 
And there certainly can be other explanations like undiagnosed hepatitis or reactions to medications. But barring any other clear explanation, we think about this, this leaky liver as being the culprit. So that's one of those. We'll also see a lot of changes in fasting blood glucose. And this is really fascinating. People think a lot about the importance of that, which there is a lot, but we often think about like how, how our, our diet in terms of carbohydrate intake affects blood glucose. But yet fasting glucose, fasting blood glucose, by definition, that's not after a meal. And so when someone has high glucose in the morning, that's not based upon what they ate recently. So what's happening is their liver is leaking out too much glucose throughout the course of the night. And they've even shown now through some pretty fascinating studies, they can differentiate the glucose in your blood, whether or not your liver produced it or it came from your meal, even in the daytime, even like right after a meal. And what we're seeing is that people who are prone towards diabetes, that about two thirds of their blood sugar has nothing to do with the meal they just ate. It's what their body is making all by themselves. So other things that show up in tests would include triglycerides and cholesterol. And in many circumstances, these are also types of fuel that are leaking out of the liver. So yeah, it's awesome to see all those things shift and they, and they can quite readily. Yeah, that's encouraging for sure. And I'm curious, I would guess that as someone starts this process and tries to improve their liver, first of all, that's a much better metric, I think, to focus on than just calories or weight because yeah. it's more tangible, more measurable. But is it one of those things that as the body heals itself or as the body improves over time, it gets easier in a sense? Like in other words, the more we support the liver, do these cycles actually become more effective because the body is able to more effectively utilize fuel? That's an awesome insight and you're spot on right there too. So when, when the liver is healthy, then you've got that metabolic flexibility and you'll, you'll be able to make use of a broader range of fuel types, a broader quantity of them and still maintain good health and function. And it's kind of funny, we focused, we focused for a long time about the importance of the, the gut and the gut flora and it's a big deal, it's super important. But conceptually, all that is occurring outside of your body still. So your gut is really a tube that goes from you know, mouth to butt, but what's inside the tube is not yet really interacting with your body. But when you assimilate things and they come into your bloodstream, first stop is the liver. And there's a group of specialized cells called Kupfer cells that are liver cells unique to the, I'm sorry, immune cells unique to the liver. And they're the sentinels that see what's coming in from the outside world from the intestinal tract. And there's a lot of feedback between the bile and the gut flora and the gut and the liver and the bile. There's this, there's this gut liver axis. And what we're learning is that yes, harm to the gut can affect the liver in terms of things like leaky gut or the, or they call it the bacterial translocation, but it works both directions. You know, when the liver is not functioning well, the properties of the bile are not correct to support the desirable flora to prevent the leaky gut in the first place. So it's a hugely important facet of health. That's fascinating. And I feel like that's something that even it tripped me up for a while to understand that the gut is actually external to the body because <laughs> when you first think of it, you're like, no, it's inside, but really it's truly like, um, I think of those, I don't know if you ever had one, but when I was a kid, we had these little like tubes that were supposed to be like seawater and they were, they were like an end, ever ending tube that you, you could put your finger through and it would just keep going basically. And it, I'm, I kind of, that's how the gut is. It's almost like a straw that just goes through your body. And so that's yeah. a hopeful analogy for people to understand. This episode is brought to you by Alatura Naturals Skincare. 
You guys loved the founder, Andy, when he came on this podcast to talk about his own healing journey after a tragic accident caused massive scarring on his face. From this experience, he developed some of the most potent and effective natural skincare options from serums and masks and a lot of products in between. The results are super visible on his perfectly clear skin that is free of scars. I personally love the mask and I use it a couple times a week and I often use their gold serum at night to nourish my skin while I sleep. All of their products have super clean ingredients and they really work. Andy is absolutely dedicated to creating the highest quality products possible and it shows. You can check them out at alaturanaturals.com forward slash wellness mama and use the discount code wellness to get 20% off. So again, that's Alatura Naturals. So A L I T U R A N A T U R A L S dot com forward slash wellness mama and the discount code wellness to save 20%. This episode is sponsored by Four Sigmatic, maker of some of my favorite coffees, teas, and drink mixes. They're infused with superfood mushrooms like reishi, cordyceps, chaga, turkey tail, and lion's mane. Many of their formulations also include adaptogens, which are herbs that help our bodies adapt to stress, and other beneficial ingredients, all tucked into convenient packets that you can add to hot or cold water for a quick drink. My personal favorite is their mushroom coffee because I already drink coffee and adding superfood mushrooms is an easy way to upgrade my morning cup. I also keep packets in my purse for when I'm out and about, especially when I'm traveling. If you aren't familiar with the many benefits of these mushrooms, they contain things like polyphenols, polysaccharides, beta-glucans, and antioxidants that support the immune system. And they aren't just great for us, they actually improve the environment in several ways too. They help with soil health through a process called bioremediation, which is the breakdown of toxic compounds that have infiltrated water and soil. They're truly something you can feel great about consuming, both for your own health and for the environment. Wellness Mama listeners get a special discount. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash wellness mama and use the code wellness mama to save 15%. Again, that's F O U R S I G M A T I C dot com forward slash wellness mama and the code wellness mama to save 15%. I love how also in the book you frame so much instead of just talking about food and calories, you talk about fuel and you talk about the beneficial side. And I think that's such a helpful just paradigm shift because I think we have gotten into a place in society where we, so many foods are demonized. And I think there are a large number of people who truly don't even know what to eat anymore because everything is bad in some way. So I love that you're helping to shift that conversation as well. Um, And on that note, what are some of the things, um, can you just walk us through some of the basics of the dietary side of what you feel like are most supportive of the liver? Well, yeah. So the in the diet, we get things that come into different categories, and one category would be the fuel. And we need we need things from the fuel, and all sources of fuel, independent of their ability to supply energy, have some things to offer. You know, so carbs can give fiber, fat can give essential fatty acids. Sources of ketones, whether we make them or not, can be useful for structure of brain cells and regulation of metabolism. So they, they all have some some good roles to play. Then we think about protein, and that's an important part of maintaining the muscle mass and especially so for good liver function and then just maintaining good basal metabolic rate and there's micronutrients and the liver needs a good diversity of those you know there's there's about uh, 9000 different chemical reactions that occur in the body and the bulk of those are managed by the liver in some way or another and they depend upon a big variety of, of uh, micronutrients vitamins and minerals some common things that can be lacking can include 
zinc or B12 or folate or converted forms of B6. And in, in the deficit of any of these, the liver's function gets impaired, both in terms of how it makes its own reactions and also how it forms protective antioxidants that keep it from being harmed from these chemical processes. And then the exciting other category that I put a lot of thought into selecting foods from would be the phytonutrients. And I say that with an uplift, I guess, because they're really phytotoxins. So this is weird, but there's a lot of things in foods that are probably there as pesticides from, from the plant itself or insecticides in the plant. But in the microscopic amounts that we find them from in foods, they really seem to scare our liver into working better. So we think about like, like broccoli and the glucosinolates, for example. If you could take a lot of that, it would be deadly. But the tiny amounts in food ramp up a set of pathways called the NRF2 pathways or some phase two conjugation pathways. But a big variety of fruits and vegetables supplies us with things that make the liver startled enough to work better. So it's an odd concept, but they're, they're, they're good for us because they're just a little bit bad for us. <laughs> That's super interesting. And on the note of broccoli, uh, a little bit of a tangent. I remember when I first was diagnosed, one of the things you recommended that I just occasionally work into my diet was broccoli sprouts. And I know it wasn't just for that. And there's um, the sulforaphane as well. But can you talk about that just as a side note, the benefits? For sure. Yeah, they're a rich, a rich source of sulforaphanes. And your liver, there's a lot of chemical reactions that go on, but they've been categorized into groups called phase one and phase two. And generally, phase one reactions involve taking chemicals you'd like to get rid of and, and like, like stirring them up, like making them agitated, making them more volatile. And that's only good as a means to an end. And the end would be phase two, in which you take that activated chemical and then you stick something onto it. So I almost imagine like, like, a, like an epoxy glue where you've got two stages. You know, the first one is like one layer and the second one then makes it hold on. And so what happens commonly is that with thyroid strain and also from a lot of facets of modern life, that first phase gets too active relative to that second phase. And we call that pathologic detoxification. So your liver is trying to get rid of normal wastes of metabolism or just junk from the modern world, you know, all the toxicants that we're exposed to. But in doing so, if it's, if it's doing so poorly, it can make these things even worse, even more harmful chemically than they were beforehand. So there's common situations in which it's beneficial to coax up phase two relative to phase one. And sulforaphanes, they're powerful agents for that. And one of the densest sources by far are the broccoli sprouts. <laughs> And they're super easy to make. I'll make sure I put a link in the show notes as well in case any of you guys are interested in growing them at home. Um, they're really inexpensive and they're, I think they're really delicious. Um, another thing I feel like that seems like it is a big factor here, and I would love for you to speak on if it is, uh, is the importance of sleep. And I say that only because I know from my own research, if you don't get enough sleep in one day, you'll start showing the signs of potentially prediabetes. All of your hormones get out of whack. I'm assuming there's also has to be a liver effect. So does the sleep quality and sleep time come into play at, at all as well? They're, they're completely relevant. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right on that too. Um, in Chinese medicine, they talked a lot about these clocks the body would go through and how the early hours of the morning was the liver time. And we know that, that, that the liver has 
these various jobs, but it's also storing fuel for future use. And we call, we call this the formation of glycogen, especially. And it does take being in REM sleep to do a good job of forming glycogen. And glycogen is a type of, type of carbohydrate that's stored in the liver. And it's great to be, ha- to be available as a fuel for just daily activity, but also the liver needs it to carry out a lot of chemical reactions. Paradoxically, it needs glycogen to burn fat effectively. And burning fat is important just to take that at face value, like burning body fat, but it's also a big part of making sure the liver's not getting clogged and able to help break down the waste that are inside of it. So without a good supply of glycogen, the liver can't do a process called beta oxidation and burn fat as effectively for fuel. In glycogen production, it's hard to do during the day when our cortisol levels are fluctuating, you know, our blood sugar is rising and falling because of our activity. So it's one of the many maintenance tasks that our body has to focus on during deep stages of sleep. And you're exactly right. You can compromise one night and see measurable changes in blood sugar that can be worrisome. So sleep is essential for all that. Yeah, I feel like that's potentially one of the bigger problems in the modern world that um, we all know we should sleep, but I don't know that we fully understand just how drastically that impacts our health and how it just start like, and I know you've written about this in the adrenal reset diet, but looking at blue screens at night yeah. and all the exposure to artificial light and not getting enough sunlight, all of those are so important for our hormone levels. And it's sometimes hard, I feel like, to really understand that because it's not as immediately measurable as if you eat a food that isn't as great for you, you sometimes feel bad pretty quickly. Um, you don't necessarily see those changes as immediately, so they're harder to pinpoint. But I yeah. love that you're spreading the about that. You know, and something that I didn't even mention in the book, but I've stumbled across recently that I wish I would have put more in the book is about there's more data mounting that sleep sleep timing, uh, the, the when your sleep is occurring, maybe is close to as important as how much that you're getting. And emerging data suggests that the hours closer to sunset for wherever you are, whatever your time zones and daylight and darkness cycles are like, are like, that the hours closer to sunset may be more productive for liver health than the hours afterward. So the, you have the whole early to bed, early to rise thing, even if it's the same amount of sleep, you may get more mileage out of it. Interesting. And at this point, I think there might also be people wondering um, when it comes to especially the metabolism reset diet and getting back to that metabolic flexibility, how is this different, for instance, than just like straight caloric restriction or what's, what's the difference in the process there? Yeah. So caloric restriction, the drawback there is you can end up compromising protein. And there's also quantities of caloric restriction that we know are just setting the stage for rebound weight gain. I remember way back when Oprah had one of her hallmark moments where she carted out the big wagon of, of 72 pounds of fat, if I remember correctly, the number that she lost from you know, liquid protein diets. And we don't have those anymore because they're illegal because a lot of people died from that. So if there's too big of a caloric deficit, it can be fatal, especially if it's with only poor quality, incomplete proteins like, like those were. So, so yeah, just the caloric deficit alone it's a sad thing because in controlled situations, it is a strong predictor of weight changes in the short term. But in the real world, it's not a great predictor of long-term waste loss. And that's, that's the goal. So the difference is that this is meant to be a program that is done short-term. It's not the idea of a crash diet in the negative sense, but it's something that's meant to really elicit a lasting change towards long-term lasting waste loss. Got it. And I know another thing that's incredibly trendy right now is various versions of the keto diet, which is obviously 
well, it actually, it ranges in a lot, depending on who you ask, but typically higher fat, um, moderate-ish protein and very low carb. And I'm curious, um, just your take on that from a liver perspective and from an overall health and long-term weight loss perspective. Well, so there's there's ketogenic and there's ketosis. And it's a funny thing, they often get conflated or thought to be interchangeable. And any way that you have a deficit of, of fuel for a period of time, your body will start to burn some ketones. And if there's, a, if there's a mild fuel deficit, that may be advantageous for helping to decrease appetite. But the question often arises is that, are those ketones themselves somehow causing weight loss? And, and they're not. They're just normal things that show up when the body is low in fuel. So the idea about forcing the body to make ketones and somehow that these high amounts of ketones themselves drive weight loss, it's just not... Uh, it's not a solid understanding of biochemistry. You know, ketones themselves are another fuel source. And like fats, like carbs, they ultimately break down into oxaloacetate. And and so far, all the studies that have have controlled the food intake have shown that if you are on a ketogenic diet and you're on a lower food intake overall, you'll lose weight, but not to a greater degree than you would have on some different diet on that same food intake. And it's quite possible to gain weight on a ketogenic diet as well. So there can be a benefit in terms of controlling appetite, but you can achieve that benefit with any food combination that gives a gentle food deficit. It doesn't require you know, high intakes of just one food type. As far as general overall health, we've had a pretty decent amount of data in terms of, of thyroid function. The, the largest amount of evidence we have on ketogenic diets comes from just, I'm actually looking outside my window about at that center. It's Barrow's Neurologic Center in downtown Phoenix. And they've done most of the work on ketogenic diets and epilepsy. And there, there certainly is a place to where kids that have medica- um, non-responsive seizures that don't work well the medications, they can benefit for some periods of time with ketogenic diets and have fewer seizures. It's, it's quite clear. But they've tracked so many kids that they've also seen that there are certain side effects that are predictable. And one of the biggest ones involves changes in thyroid function. So thyroid disease, it's quite common amongst adults, you know, based on where we draw the line for someone having thyroid disease, you could say that's a quarter of adults at any given age or even higher, but amongst children, it can be quite rare. It may be even a few cases per thousand amongst preschool or early school age children. But when those same kids are on ketogenic diets for their seizures, we'll then see rates of thyroid disease as high as 20%. So it becomes quite prevalent. And that same thing doesn't happen to these, these same kids because of their seizures or because of their seizure medications. It only happens to those who are on ketogenic diets. And many have lasting thyroid disease afterward. So we know that the body has ways to spare its metabolism. And that's just what it does in the case of high states of ketone formation is we suppress our metabolic rate by changing our thyroid output. And the pitfall is that for many, then that, that can then be lasting. And I guess the other general concern is whenever a diet cuts out too many food categories, especially all the food categories that involve the many types of fibers. You know, we often think about fiber as a thing, but it's really a category. And there's at least 15, 16 types of fiber that have been described that we get from a full range of food categories. And when one is ketogenic, you, you, you just have to restrict food categories so much that your total fiber diversity plummets. So even if you were to add in Metamucil or fiber supplements, just your food categories are so low that we often do see negative changes to the bowel flora. And we know that it's important. 
So, so yeah, if, if anyone's had their, their health improved from that, that's awesome. I, anything that works is wonderful, but there are, there are pitfalls. And as far as just overall group effects, it, it doesn't seem to be advantageous over just lower food diets for, for weight loss. Got it. And I'm curious if you could speak to, um, because I mean, obviously all of these diets, they have their place in society at different times because they've worked at least for a subset of the population at some point. Um, but can you kind of explain how both like diets that seem polar opposites, like for instance, a raw vegan diet and also a fully, like a more high fat keto type diet, they can both be effective for people and kind of accomplish the same thing. Yeah, that can seem so bizarre. And the, the response that we'll often hear is that, oh, people, people are all different. And for sure, there's, for sure, we've got distinct personalities and preferences and whatnot. But I don't know. I think that, and yes, we certainly can have different food intolerances and, and food tastes. But, but really, uh, you know, none of us photosynthesize. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not, at, at the core base of our biochemistry, we're not that different from one to the next. So it can happen that you do the same thing from different angles. So if you, if you go raw food vegan, for example, you often cut out on a lot of fuel density that would come from many types of fats or many processed foods, you know, processed carbohydrate. And if one does go strict, very strict paleo or keto, they'll cut out a lot of fuel from, from many types of carbs and many types of, and obviously all processed carbs. So in both those cases, you can really be cutting fuel intake. And that by itself can be a good thing. I would argue that if that's the part that matters the most, let's just be aware of that and still have a variety of fuel for what we've got. And then also make sure that we're supporting our muscle mass along the way. So yeah, it's completely possible, like the whole all roads lead to Rome, but, but you know, knowing that and figuring out what's, what's the best way to travel on that road. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, what about, the, I often hear the term, especially related to why people struggle with long-term weight loss, the idea of metabolic set point or the idea that your body gets comfortable at a certain weight. And I'm curious if people are addressing the liver side and actually like the biochemical side of this versus just trying to lose weight on a scale. Is that something that you feel like can shift over time? In other words, can the body become comfortable at a lower weight once it's been there for a while? You know, it certainly can shift. And, and the term set point, one really could think of that rather interchangeably with, with metabolic flexibility. So when, when someone loses their metabolic flexibility, their, their set point gets higher and can't really change. And what's happening is because their liver is so full of triglyceride, it's so jammed up with triglyceride, and because it's so devoid of glycogen that it doesn't have the capacity to store any spare fuel. So whenever you get extra food, that has to get stored as subcutaneous fat or visceral fat or organ fat. And then on the flip side, when someone lowers their food intake with an attempt to lose weight, the liver has no ability to really break down stored fat safely. So either you got to make such a big deficit that you're eating up muscle mass, because that's the biochemistry is that when there's no stored glycogen, or if there's too little protein present, the liver has to utilize muscle mass to convert that into glucose to either burn fat or make ketones. And when you lose muscle mass, you're setting up for just regain and bouncing back up again. So that, that's where the, it's important to identify the fuel as being the main variable, but then keeping protein steady so that that's there to keep the muscle mass present and also to supply for glycogen regrowth again. Got it. And I know I said it already once, but I want to echo it again. Um, I got to read a 
pre-advanced copy of your book, which was spectacular, which I expected no less because all of your writing is amazing, but um, (laughs) link to the show notes. I know it's also available anywhere that books are sold. I just would encourage you guys listening to check it out. I think it will really reframe how you think of food and fuel and weight loss and offers a much healthier perspective, I feel like, on, on the whole idea. So, highly, highly endorse it and make sure I'll oh, make sure it's linked in the show notes. But I, toward the end of interviews, I can't believe our time has already flown by, but I love to ask a couple uh, sort of unrelated questions and I can't wait to hear your answers. The first being, um, if there's a book or books besides your own, which will of course already be linked, that really have impacted your life and they don't have to be health related. Um, just, I'm always looking for new reading material. <laughs> you know, two, two that have the most, uh, and I guess in serendipitous ways, one of which because it drove me into the profession I went in. And that was the earlier edition of the textbook of natural medicine. This was in the early 90s. And it was one of the first, I guess, encyclopedias of all the things that natural medicine has to offer. It's It's been updated ever since. Now we're on, I think it's the 13th edition. And it's, a, it's an awesome thing because I got to go from a fan of that and have it bring me into this whole world to be a contributing writer to it now for the 12th and 13th editions on the chapters on thyroid disease. So that that's one. And Another one, which Katie, I, I know that you're crazy smart and you've got a big range of knowledge in different fields. There was a book series from which the there was a, a book from which the Cosmos series, the original one with Carl Sagan in 1980, was based off of. And big, thick book, lots of beautiful illustrations. Much of it was new from the Galileo missions, but very cutting edge science. But also just really deep explanations on how we understand what we understand about astronomy and astrophysics and how the world works and basic physics. So. Yeah, the Cosmos book was like, I still have my, my version of that from sixth grade and just been completely in love with that ever since. <laughs> so Cosmos by Carl Sagan. I love that. Those are both new recommendations and no one's recommended before. Uh, and lastly, if there was a piece of advice, again, it doesn't have to be health related, but it can be that you could spread far and wide. Um, I'd love to help you do that right now with the couple hundred thousand people who are listening. I think the most important thing nowadays is to think about your thinking and, and just question, question data, question trends. When, when I first got into the whole journey of, of health, it was just novel to have any information. And now, well, we've got all the data we could ever, like all the artistic endeavors and wisdom from all mankind at our mobile devices 24-7 pretty much. So the real thing now becomes how well do we filter data? So I would encourage everyone to get good at just having some basic knowledge about what are some of the, the, the ways in which our brain has bugs and not features? What are the cognitive biases that are built in? And how do we often make suppositions that don't serve us in the long term? But just to get good at questioning our thoughts and our ideas. And if you know if someone tells you that bananas are bad foods, don't question if that's right or not. Question how they arrived at that conclusion. And that, that's, I think, the real big thing that's going to set us apart in the future is how well we can be discriminators of data. That's a great point. I love that. And I think that's the perfect place to stop for today. But of course, you're always welcome to come back. And I know that we'll have many future conversations. But for now, thank you for sharing your time and your wisdom with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Always good to be with you and just a huge fan of your work and really appreciate everything that you do. And Likewise. And thanks to all of you who are listening for sharing your most valuable asset of your time with us today. And I hope that you will join me again on the next episode of the Wellness Mama podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? 
Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.